How many times have we heard those two words together? Grace is usually coupled with amazing. If, uh, if someone's going to sing a song and they say, I'm going to sing a song from my church roots, what comes out of their mouth? Amazing grace. If we are, um, uh, seeing some kind of competition or something, seeing competition and they're doing that amazing grace keeps coming up. And those two words are so familiar to us. And I have to confess, I am extremely familiar with, and pardon my crude word here, but I'm familiar with all this stuff. You might go, well, it's more than stuff. I know it is. I, I know in my mind it is, but my receptivity to it, my wrapping my head around it, allowing it to penetrate in my life usually ends up oftentimes feeling more like stuff than the thing that it is, which is this amazing grace that's been made available to us. I've, uh, I, I've grown up in church. I've I now employed in this church now for nearly 15 years and stuff. I'm around it. I'm so comfortable in it. I'd much rather talk about the things of the Lord than anything else. And it's just part of who I am and, and where I find my comfort and everything. So I'm so familiar with this. And, and I didn't have the kind of conversion story that came from, you know, where I, I found Christ after, you know, being on the streets or in the gangs or running with the wrong crowd all the time or involved in promiscuous sex and all these kinds of things. It was kind of introduced to me at a very young age and the rest of my family was following through. It made sense to me and I surrendered and received Christ at a very young age. It was real. He got a hold of me. But my point is, is that when I hear of stories that are so dramatically different than mine or the rescue of it is that we were on this path and we were caught up in all these things and there was emptiness and then Christ came right at the right time and rescued me out of that. I mean, that's not been my experience. And so when I think of grace being amazing, I have to think of it in the sense of, I, I often think of it as amazing for everybody else. Now, I know in my head that it is amazing. I know theologically that, that grace is this very real thing, this very undeserved thing, this thing that we just prayed about and sang about. But the application of it in terms of what it really does inside my soul and everything, I usually think, okay, I know those people that have been absolutely transformed. I don't always feel like that person. Some of you in this room might understand where I'm getting at. Others might be offended by what I just said, like as though I don't really engage in this Christian life and stuff. So hopefully you don't misinterpret what I'm saying. It's just we are so often motivated in life by what we feel. We often wait for... Uh, an opportunity to change the path we're on or change the things that we're doing based on this rush of emotion, based on this thing that presents itself kind of like, um, how, how can I say this? It's, it's like, uh, if I'm, if I'm waiting for a negative experience to push me out the door, you know, a bad medical report, a bad marriage situation, a bad job situation, or something tragic with the family or bad grades or all these kinds of things. It's that, then we say, okay, the Lord's got my attention. Now I'm ready to give my life to him. That is, although somewhat masked, that is an, an expression of being a feeling-oriented person. In other words, I waited till the, the heat got turned up to where I started saying, okay, now I know I got to get serious with the Lord. And that happens. And the Lord's willing to use those things in our life. He does it by his, his loving mercy and his grace. He allows those things to come into our life, our life so that he gets our attention. 
but also to wait on the other hand. You know, you say, okay, if I finally win the lottery, then I'm going to give to the church. Or if I, you know, can can get that promotion, then I'm going to, you know, be involved in the Sunday school or I'm going to do, you know, so it's kind of this bargaining back and forth. And you wait for that good thing to show up so that you can ride that wave of emotion in a positive way to do the thing that you're probably, you know, sensing the Lord's calling you to do anyway, regardless of that arrival, that external feeling to come. But this is who we are in our sinful selves, in and of ourselves. And that's the predominant philosophy out there in the world. You wait to feel before you do. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, I, I asked this question to a couple that I've been working with in my office this week. And we were talking about, you know, whether or not we should be living by emotions or something else, which we'll get into in a second here. And I use the same illustration I probably have a couple of times here. So I apologize for being a Johnny one note on you. Any musicians out there, you know, that's your solo, just that one note. That's me anyway on the guitar. So I might as well be that as a preacher. Uh, so my, my Johnny one note illustration is this. Uh, how many of you would actually go to a movie just because, don't raise your hands because this went badly for me this week. How many of you would go to a movie just to hear the soundtrack or because you heard the soundtrack was great. Let me see if I can, this isn't for me anyway, but we are going to need this. Why? All right, there. I forgot where I was for a second there. If you were going to the movies just to hear the soundtrack or you heard the music's going to be great. I mean, how many people really do that? Well, I asked the question to this couple this week. And uh, they're becoming my new friends and we're having a great time and everything. And she looked right at me and said, uh, me, like I would do that. And then it, like it instantly dawned on me, my wife would have said the same thing because of all the musicals that are out there now, you know, all those happy fun, you know, you see the commercial and everyone's doing this and everything. And all the women in the house are like, we got to go see that. It's going to be amazing. You know, if you choose to pick your entertainment that way, I guess. But for the most of us sane people, um, <laughs> Notice my wife's not in here. She isn't, right? She's in. She's supposed to be in children's church doing that thing. Uh, you know, most of us, we select going to a movie for a bunch of reasons. Some of it could just be there's nothing else to do. It's really hot outside. Let's go where the AC works or something. But for the most part, we either know who the director is or we, we want to see the next movie in a series of things or we want to see Mission Impossible because Tom Cruise never ages and he like hangs out of airplanes by his jacket. And so we want to see, does that really work and how does that work and stuff? And we're drawn to either the bigger story or we're drawn to uh, the, the actor in it or the director or something like that. And we go not intending to just go, okay, I just want to hear how the music is. You might be thinking, where in the world are you going with this? Well, if you were to go to that action movie, for instance, or you were to go to that like kind of epic drama, that sweeping romance over a long period of time, you know how those romances go in the you know, the guy and the girl get together and then they break it off and then they get back together and then they break it off and then they get back together and they break it off for like three hours. And then the way that always ends up, right? You know where I'm going with this. You know, the way that this always ends up is the dude is trying to get to her apartment before she's fully done with him. And where is she? She's at the airport because she's already left. And the sister is behind saying, you've missed her. You have to go catch her now. 
So the dude's running through the airport, right? That's how all of these, even in the movies that took place before airplanes, they somehow stru- you know, drop an airport, right? And then because you need that as part of your movie formula. And so they're running and trying to get there and everything. But if you were to go to either of these like really act, great action movies or sci-fi or these romances and stuff, and the director forgot to engage or employ a, 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 a band or a, you know an orchestra or something like that, you would leave that movie going, it was kind of good, but something was missing. What was it? You notice when you go to these good movies, you're not thinking going, oh, they put that violin right at the right time. Wasn't that amazing? Just when I wanted to cry, they made it sad. This, that's not what happens during the experience. The experience is, is that we're engaged in whatever's going on, and then the music comes in to support the story. It allows us to experience those, those highs. It allows us to feel those lows. If the director forgets to include that, then we go, something really major is missing from the story. This is what's true of human motivation. We, we see books being sold all over the place. We see seminars and all these kinds of things. People are talking about what it means to be motivated. And for the most part, the packaging of that does provide some avenue to success. If you're talking about just what you can accomplish on this earth, you know, the, the package is what do you want in life? It's time for you to get what's yours. So go out and chase it down with these three steps or seven steps or something like that. The key element in all of that is you, yours, your timing, you deserve it. All of that's very self-centered approach. Well, this is what happens when we're looking for motivation based on the way that we feel. The, The point about the movie soundtrack is this. God has built us as emotional people. He's wired us to feel the highs and the lows. When we go to those movies or we read those stories or we're around the family in in those moving times, the graduations and the weddings and all that kind of stuff, we're supposed to feel what we feel in the time. Where the world gets it wrong and what creeps into the church is when that feeling becomes the script. When that soundtrack to the movie, to support the movie, becomes the thing that we're waiting on in order to do what we know we're supposed to do or to live the life that we know we're called to live. So when the soundtrack becomes the director, when the soundtrack becomes the screenplay, what you end up with is a whole lot of nothing. And you're going, I I can't place why this music is supposed to be here. I don't know what this is all about. This is the drama of our world. When we have a bad day, all of Facebook knows about it. When we have a good day, then we're finally motivated to do the thing that we've been putting off for a long time. And we just wait for these feelings to come and go like waves in order to respond to the Lord in the right way. There's got to be more hope for us than all of that. There's got to be something more substantive than all of that. And fortunately for us, Paul, the apostle, one of the, the prominent writers of the New Testament for us, who we talk about often here, uh, gave us some encouragement that goes beyond just waiting for riding that emotional wave. Rather than just being a feeling-oriented person, he, uh, he gives us some better hope. And we're going to get into this here for just a couple of minutes, and then we're going to illustrate this in a bit. And, and uh, Paul is uh, working with his church in Corinth. He's already sent a letter that was very much like a spanking the first time because they were a very feeling-oriented church. They were chasing down whatever method or mode of church behavior felt right at the time, made them look prestigious, all that kind of stuff. And so he had to correct that, and he kind of smacks them around a little bit with the first letter. And in the second letter, he's actually facing the potential of his own demise, earthly speaking. 
in other, in some of other, uh, Paul writings, you get the sense that he's like, I'm longing to be back with you. Hopefully this imprisonment that I have or this setback is just for a time. Now, by the time he writes a second letter to the church in Corinth, he's starting to face the reality that I may not get out of here. And so to encourage his readers, to encourage his spiritual children that have, that have been, uh, basically born again in this church, to encourage them, he starts using an example of something that's right out of his background. Paul is a tent maker. He's a leather worker. And he understands as, as you know, what people buy tents for is a temporary shelter. I mean, we're in Maine. We're in L.L. Bean country. We get it, right? Our tents are not supposed to be the thing that we're going, finally, I've arrived. I've got my little plot of grass here, and I'm going to just stay here forever. We know that what a tent is is used for is temporary shelter, able to be packed up at a moment's notice, carried out, and and, uh, serves a very specific but temporary purpose. So Paul knows about tents. That was his background. That was his history, among other things. And so Paul, as he's getting to the second letter, and he's getting to what we would refer to as chapter 5, he's he's starting to talk about now uh, that this body... This flesh that we live in is a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. It's not meant to house us permanently. It's not meant to bring us all the satisfaction that we ever envisioned when we thought of having our permanent home and all that stuff. He says, this is just a temporary thing. And Paul is explaining this, one, to encourage himself because he knows he's facing that demise, but also to encourage his, his, his listeners, his readers his spiritual children, to to wake up to the fact that we're about to lose our guy. We're about to lose the one that we've we've waited to hear from, that we've appreciated so much, that has done so much in our life. And so we can't just walk away, just like the disciples did when Jesus was crucified. We can't walk away with our tail between our legs and thinking it's all over now. So he wants them to know, look, this is going to be okay. And he says this very famous uh, phrase in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, he says because it, it, if this tent is destroyed, he goes, when we're absent from the body, that tent, we are present with the Lord, right? So in all of that, Paul is moving towards guys. Look, you have got to find your motivation beyond what just feels good or what just feels like the right next step because he knew they were about to go through a real test of that feeling. So instead, he wants to anchor their hope in something deeper. And so he gets to verse 9. And I love these two verses here in verse 9 and 10. He says in, in, uh, in verse 9, um, so whether, uh, whether we are at home or away, your translation may say, if you read in your Bible, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Again, he's been talking about the tent being destroyed. And I think there's a bit of hyperbole going on where he says, whether I'm in this body or you take me out of it, here's what my ambition is. A lot of your translations will use that word ambition or aim. We could, we could liken that to motivation. Here's what your motivation is to be pleasing to the Lord. That's it. All of that buildup for that tiny little line that we make it our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, that might sound very simplistic, but if we took a minute and just took mental inventory of our week, how did we wake up every single day? 
Was our focus as I wake up, Lord, I want to put a smile on your face today. Or was our focus, I've got so much to do. I don't know if I've got enough time to get in it. Or was our focus, I hope my spouse actually treats me with some respect today. Or I hope my kids actually aren't late for their appointment or their school or this and that. I really hope my boss doesn't get down. So when we wake up, typically our focus, because of the pattern of this bag of bones that we live in, our history, our practice, everything causes us to wake up. In a, and before we can think about anything else, we're thinking about how do I build my kingdom for me today? How do I make my next steps about giving me a reprieve from the pressures of life or the, or the difficulties? Or how do I go about seeking the pleasure that I feel like I deserve? And so that is just built within us. And Paul is saying that instead we make it our motivation, our aim, our ambition. You can use all of these great, very strong translated words to say instead make our aim, our ambition, our motor all about putting a smile on God's face. How do I go about doing that? Well, the Bible is loaded with information on that topic. But the idea is that if you and I don't step into it willingly and saying, Lord, you've got my day, you've got my heart, you've got my motivation, what do I do with it? God's faithful. He'll show up to that all day long. You don't have to worry about, well, I don't know what to do next. You just have to make yourself available. So a feeling-oriented person says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait till my circumstances improve. I'm going to wait till he gets off my back. I'm going to wait till this pays off. I'm going to wait till these other things. And then as those things click in, then I'll give the Lord my heart. Uh, I've got a friend coming up in a couple minutes who's going to help illustrate. We cannot wait for those things. When we see the reality of our situation, when we see what the truth is with what we're, what we're going through, when we see the truth, the truth is of what's at stake in life, we cannot wait for this feeling motivated uh, existence to just take over. Instead, we live by principle. We live by truth. We live by the principles of God's word that says, because this is right to do, because you are a child of him, because this amazing grace has been given to you, you can therefore go and do. So it becomes less about the performance and more about the being. You ever heard that phrase before? You know, you probably have a million times. That's not very Christian of you. Well, that was a very Christian thing to do. It's this kind of like external performancey thing that we're supposed to behave like Christians. The Bible never really addresses it just about behavior. It says you are, so therefore be. And as our motivation becomes, Lord, you've given me this amazing grace, a grace I don't deserve. And because of that, Lord, in principle, knowing that that's all been applied to me, I'm going to go out and live for you. I can't wait for these feelings to arrive. I can't wait for the circumstances of my life to turn around. So Jeremy's going to come and, oh, there he is over on the side. Jeremy Jones is going to come and uh, give us some examples from his own life about where that switch needed to take place and then where we're going to go as a church as a result. So thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, Pastor Brent. Morning. Um, my name is Jeremy, and I am a believer and follower in Jesus Christ who has struggled with alcohol addiction. Um, I say struggled because today I have a, a reprieve from my addiction because of the grace of God um, and the work that I, I put into working the steps of uh, AA, and I'm going to get more on that in a minute. Um, my wife Jessica and I have attended faith for almost five years now um, with our three children, uh, Wyatt, who's eight, Connor's five, and Adeline is two. 
Um, and I wouldn't have had any of any of that today if I hadn't have um, made the choice that I made to turn my life over to God. I'm going to talk more about my alcohol addiction in a minute, um, but I feel strongly um, about mentioning that I also used to struggle with pornography. And that's that's an addiction that is almost accepted in our society today. And if it's not accepted, a lot of people will turn a blind eye to it, um, even if they're opposed to it, because they don't see how it affects them personally, uh, whether it be family members or loved ones. Um, statistics show that 7 in 10 men struggle with that addiction. And um, it, it's those are those are lies that they don't affect other people they they corrupt the way we look at the opposite sex they destroy the way we look at ourselves and they erode and slowly deteriorate the relationships that we have um, so I'm not going to talk any more about that for obvious reasons but I just want to throw that out there uh, in case there are any other men in particular that are struggling um, that, that there are other people out there and, and there is hope um, so that's that. Um, back to my alcohol addiction. Um, I started drinking when I was a freshman in high school. Few and far between. Um, it wasn't as readily available as it became when I got older. Um, but my senior year is when it really started to progress uh, almost every weekend. Um, it got to the point where I passed up an opportunity to play baseball at a collegiate level, um, a sport that I loved my whole life. I used to say I want to be a professional baseball player, and not just every kid that says that. I, I worked hard at it. Um, but my drinking became more important, hanging out with my buddies, uh, so I chose to go to a school that I was not uh, offered an opportunity to play. And I chose to not even try to walk on uh, because I just continued drinking. It was more available to me um, in that atmosphere. So that lasted for a year. Um, I dropped out of college. Uh, but during that time, I met my wife, or soon-to-be future wife. Um, we've now been married for 13 years. When we were married, uh, we were in our 20s. We had no responsibilities, um, no children. All of our friends uh, went out all the time. They were older than us. Um, and it, it's what everyone was doing, so I didn't stand out from the crowd. Um, and as my drinking progressed, I found the ones that continued to drink, uh, even when others started having kids. So I still didn't stand out. And when I did start to stand out, I uh, would start fights with my wife um, to take the attention away from my drinking and, and spin it on something else. Um, I, I would manipulate situations. I would lie. I would um, I would get what I wanted in any way I, I could. Uh, I was extremely selfish. Uh, and my drink, drinking was the number one priority. Uh, when, when Jessica became pregnant with our first child, Wyatt, um, my alcohol consumption was at its peak, um, and it stayed that way for, for a few years after he was born. Um, I remember thinking I wouldn't be allowed into the delivery room uh, if I didn't maintain a level where I could drink but not be obviously drunk, uh, so I, I would be able to see my child being born. Um, after Wyatt was born, um, I I did feel that I, there was something tugging at me that, that I needed to slow down, um, not quit, but slow down. Um, I, um, I, I would 
drive home from work in Auburn. Uh, we lived in Waterville, and I would drink the entire way home, and I would pick him up from daycare uh, after doing that, and I, I would make sure the daycare provider didn't know. I'd spray some cologne or, or uh, pop in some gum, um, and I would make sure when I got home I always had a beer open, so if I smelled like it, I had an excuse, uh, so Jess wouldn't call me out on it. Um, I had made excuses to myself when I felt this way that maybe I had a problem. I made excuses that I, I, I was foolish. I'd never had an OUI. I'd never been arrested. I'd never done this. I'd never done that. This is what an alcoholic is. That's not me. Um, I, um, after two years of drinking that way, I started feeling helpless. Um, I knew I needed to quit. Uh, and I had never felt this passionate about it before. Um, so I tried to rein it in. I tried just weekends. I tried holidays, just special occasions. And then special occasions turned into a three-day to a four-day to what's the point. Um, it, it just it didn't work. Whatever I tried didn't work. Um, and alcohol was controlling my life, and I, I would have points where I would look back and think, how did this happen? You know, this used to be fun, and now I'm drinking because I have to. Um, at least that's what alcohol told me I had to. Um, it, it felt like I had someone in my ear saying, I know what you've done. I know, you know, I know what's happened to you. I'm the only one that's been here for you, and that's how the drink that day started. Um, it was it was the guilt and the shame that had piled up, and the only way I knew how to bury it was by drinking. Um, I I had somewhat of a, an understand. I shouldn't even say understanding. I believed in a God. I just didn't know what or who. Um, I basically only went to church uh, on Christmas with my mother just to make her happy when I was younger, um, and. During my drinking, I would find myself waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, tears running down my eyes, thinking, how did this happen again? Um, it got to the point where I no longer fell asleep. I always passed out on the couch uh, watching TV. Um, I, w I would find myself bartering, negotiating. Uh, some people call it a foxhole prayer. Uh, if you do this for me, I'll do this. Uh, if you get me out of this situation, you know, I'll never do this again. Um, if you've ever tried that, it doesn't work. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I was trying to fill a spiritual hole uh, with alcohol. And towards the end of my drinking, um, Jess was pregnant with our second son, Connor. And I had told her that, that I was going to quit drinking. I had never, never told anyone that before because I knew if I said it, I had to hold myself accountable um, to fulfill that. And... Part of me knew I couldn't, but I figured it was worth a shot. Um, all that led to was me drinking in the basement by myself and hiding it and hiding alcohol around the house. Uh, so if I was in a room that I needed to take a drink, I could take a drink in secret. Um, luckily, it was in the winter, so I always had an excuse to have a cough drop in my mouth. That's really the only way I was able to get through that with her, out her finding out. Um, my last night ever of taking a drink um, 
we went Christmas shopping and I had told myself all day at work, you know, this, this is going to be her night. We have a sitter. We never get a sitter. I'm not going to drink tonight. Um, and this is going to be about her. And that was a lie. Uh, as soon as I got out of work, I was at the gas station. And oftentimes when I ended up at the gas station, I don't even consciously remember driving there. Like it was just so much a habit at that point. So I had drank a bottle of wine from Auburn to Augusta, and I had drank, snuck off to the bathroom and drank in every store we were in to the point where we went out to dinner at the Olive Garden, and the lights were dim, and my eyes were starting to fall, and she looked across the table from me, and, and she was just thoroughly disgusted is not even the word. Um, she said, you've been drinking, haven't you? And I said, yep. And over the years, I had just worn her down so much that all of the fight was out of her and she didn't even didn't even respond in a way that I I guess I kind of hoped she had would because it was just complete defeat and and uh, she had given up on me and I didn't blame her um, so that night um, on the drive home after I had been driving uh, her and our unborn child around and drinking the entire night so she wouldn't catch on, she drove home, and uh, I had told her after a lot of silence that I needed help and I was going to go to an AA meeting the next day. And um, I'm not sure she believed me. I'm not sure I believed myself uh, because of all the lies I had told over the years, but I, I know I, I knew I meant it at the time. Um, whether it was because I wanted to help or because she had given up on me. but um, So the next day I looked up a meeting. I was hoping there would be one in the morning so I could kind of get it out of the way. It was not until 6 o'clock at night, so I had to go through the whole day second-guessing myself. I told her I was going to go. Uh, I left that night. I'm not sure she believed me even to that point. Um, but I, I ended up going. I drove around the church a few times. I parked in the parking lot. Um, I scoped it out make sure I was going in the right door. I went inside. Um, I, I chose a seat that was the wrong seat to choose. Um, there, you would think there's not a wrong seat in an AA meeting, if any of you have ever been, but most of the seats are like this, and they're facing this way, and someone that chairs the meetings facing this way. Well, I sat down next to him facing this way, and uh, it was extremely embarrassing at first, but after I started bawling, I really didn't, didn't care that all the eyes were on me. Um, I, I got up, and, and at the end of the meeting, well, throughout the meeting, it felt like everyone's story was my story, and I, I, I cried my eyes out, like I mentioned, and um, I picked up a chip, and I, I admitted that I needed help, and someone who ended up being a pretty influential person in my, in my recovery uh, invited me to a meeting the next day, and I went, and um, I attended a meeting almost every day after that. Um, and like I had mentioned, I had always believed in a God, um, but I, I always thought it was a God that I had to please and live up to and meet his expectations before I had a shot. Um, but it, in the meetings, I was, I was, uh, drawn to Christian men that had a strong faith and I eventually learned that I was wrong and I learned who God really is. Um, and I accepted him into my life. And uh, 
I got a sponsor and I started going through the program and digging up some pretty hard truths about myself. Um, but I swore I would never do the fifth step, which is admit to myself, to God, and to another human being everything I had done, basically. All my wrongs, all the wrongs that had been done to me. Um, I, was, I wasn't going to share that with anybody, especially not a guy. Um, that, that was uh, my sticking point. Well, as I walked through the steps and worked uh, and grew spiritually with this sponsor, uh, I found out that I was going to do that because I did. Um, and I had never felt so free in my life. Um, it, uh, it was almost like the 25 years worth of baggage I'd been carrying, just to say it out loud, left it all there in that room. Um, I knew I knew it. And I, I knew God knew it, but I'd never said them all out loud to him. But doing it as a whole with the three of us in that room that night, it was just incredible. Um, I, I, I was free. Um, so alcohol and drug addiction is something that is, is uh, very close and near and dear to my heart. I have a passion for it. And... Um, not just for my own personal addiction, but my family as well. Uh, my father, he worked hard, he drank hard, he played hard and, and did drugs and that didn't leave much time for the kids. There are six of us in my family and, and we really didn't see him much. Um, my middle sister, Jocelyn, has dealt with drug and alcohol addiction most of her life. She spent time in jail. She uh, got herself in a situation that uh, she shouldn't have been in and uh, took the fall with some others. My sister Jillian um, struggled with drugs and alcohol her whole life. And at one point, her two-year-old daughter had gotten into some of the drugs that her boyfriend at the time had left out. And uh, we almost lost her. She was unconscious for I don't even know how long. I got the phone call when I was at work, and I just remember being in shock. Um, and then after that, she she spent some time in jail and in and out of rehab, and, and she felt like she wasn't worthy of anything better than that. So she was drawn to men that were that way, um, that did drugs and alcohol. And eventually one of those men uh, ended up taking her life uh, in an alcoholic, jealous rage. Um, so at the time of her death, I was 11 months into my sobriety uh, and nowhere near capable of being a leader uh, for my family, um, spiritually, any, anything. Um, and I had two choices that morning when I got the phone call. I could either take a drink and make the pain go away temporarily, and, and I'm sure no one, not even my wife, would have blamed me. Um, and it did cross my mind. Uh, that That's my addiction creeping up. Um, or call my sponsor and rely on God. And uh, I chose God. I prayed he would use the the unimaginable situation, unexplainable situation for his his good and to glorify him. And um, today I'm five and a half years sober. Um, by the grace of God, I, I can take no credit for that. Um, Multiple friends of, of Jillian's are 
believers in Christ now, some of which were self-proclaimed uh, uh, atheists or agnostic who had no, no belief at all. This is the part that got me in the first service, too. I thought I'd get through this. Um, my oldest sister, Jessica, who thankfully has never had to deal with an addiction, um, at least not an outward one that I know of, uh, she started attending church um, in her in her area, a Bible-believing church that teaches the gospel, and she's growing her faith. Um, Jocelyn's been sober for two years and has a great boyfriend. Um, and I'll get through it. My father has not had a drink in over, over a year. He believes in Jesus. And even recently, he um, prayed out loud in a restaurant with my mother and my niece, who my parents have custody of now after going through a messy, messy battle. Um, and he's even forgiven my sister's killer. So the reason I'm up here uh, today is to... Um, introduce the Celebrate Recovery program that you saw on the screen. Um, I attended AA for almost three years before I, I felt like I wasn't really growing anymore spiritually. And that may sound selfish um, that, I, that I stopped going for, for, for me because I, I could have helped others. Um, but I had done so much damage at home that I felt that I, I needed to repair what I had done there. Um, and it seems like a small commitment to go to a meeting an hour a week, but when that's after work and you don't see your kids all day, um, I prayed a lot about it, and, and I felt that the more I'd gotten involved with the church in small groups and the softball team and security, um, I was in a pretty good place spiritually, and I was um, working with others, uh, maybe not directly with addiction, but um, just recently uh, within the past half a year or so, I had, I had been praying about how to get more involved with addiction and helping people with addictions and recovery. Um, and so I reached out to Pastor Brent ab about my thoughts, and they were kind of behind the scenes thinking the same thing. Um, so after some discussion and um, some back and forth with some other churches, we decided to start the Celebrate Recovery program, um, and we felt it would be a good fit for what we believe in. Celebrate Recovery is a 12-step program with eight principles that are based on the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. Um, there's no commitment, no strings attached. There's not going to be a sign-up sheet out in the hallway. Um, if you can't make it to one meeting, but you can come to the next, please do. Um, it's not going to be like our traditional small group that we've done in the past. Um, it's it's a it's an ongoing process. Um, so once we finish the book, we're going to start all over again and start all. You know, it's it, just because we've gone through the book doesn't mean that everyone in our community has been healed or helped or reached out to. Um, so this program is not just for the people in the church 
not just for the people that believe in God or believe in Jesus Christ. You know, we, we want to reach everyone um, that's struggling with any form of addiction. My, mine personally um, may not be yours, but we all um, may need something, um, and that's what this is going to be for. For now, it's going to be men only. Um, we don't want to put anyone in a compromising situation by um, doing co-ed. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we're not open to expanding it to women as well. Um, and actually, after the first service, I had three or four women reach out to me and ask me about that. Um, so God's already doing work. Um, our hope is that you'll stick around long enough to become a believer um, if you're not already. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Um, so if, if you don't plan on attending, I just ask that you pray for this group and pray for the people that are in the group and pray for the people that are not in the group yet and, and don't know about it yet, that, they, that it may reach them. Um, I... Um, I really don't have anything else, so I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. I know our applause. You can stay standing, actually. We're going to close our time, but uh, I know our applause is twofold, right? We're applauding him for the courage to get up and tell us this story and to endure it, but uh, also our applause to the great God and King who was so faithful and compassionate to Jeremy to save him and rescue him from this. But if you would, please, please convey that applause also to your wife who, uh, in her heroic steadfastness, you know, endured her own measure of grace that she needed to go through that and stuff. And so let that be an encouragement to all of us as we're tempted to give up too soon on both sides of that equation. So, um, well, you, now you see why we're excited to, to introduce this. Uh, for us, it was the right timing, the right leadership, the right everything. And so please, if, if this is totally outside of your realm in terms of your need or anybody you know that needs that, just knowing about it and praying for it is going to be really transformational. We believe for our church because of all those that are here that want to be a part of something like this, but also the world out there who's looking for hope and answers beyond what they're finding anywhere else. And so that's what we want to be available to, to support and serve. And we're challenging the churches in the area too. A couple of churches are already taking this mantle on and, and uh, Centerpoint, I know, has launched their own program. We're talking to some other churches about doing this because we need to be praying about seeing one of these meetings every night of the week in the Waterville area. And that can happen, and that's what's needed. So we want to we be praying towards that. So amazing grace, right? Applied to all of us, whether our story was that dramatic or not quite so dramatic or anything along the lines or anywhere in between. God's grace is amazing. We do all this for his pleasure, for his glory. That becomes our motivation to continue doing what he's called us to do. Let's pray. God, we thank you, God, so much for doing something incredible right in the, the slow part of the summer. Thanks for bringing all these folks out this morning. God, we know that many are away on vacation and other uh, pre-scheduled things, and so I pray that your grace would go with them as well. But, but Lord, even uh, to a slightly smaller crowd, the word can get out. And our momentum can build. 
So I pray, God, you do a great thing in the lives of your people here today. Thank you so much for the rescue that you provide, for not giving up on us when we've done everything we can to fail and to ruin all of our chances of success. Your grace shows up at just the right time. Help us, Lord, to trust in you for all our steps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.